Some of you may know that last fall we were going through something of an intensive uh, pertaining to gospel-driven outreach uh, into the community, looking into a, what does it mean for us to, every one of us, to be missionaries in our different spheres of influence in our community and families and neighborhoods and such. And uh, coupled with that, uh, actually the session, the elders of this church for some number of years, uh, each year uh, towards the very beginning, January-ish, have tried to bring in some of our missionaries as best we possibly can, whether foreign or domestic, and have them speak here for a stretch of weeks in the very beginning of the year with the hope to sort of set the tone for the, the upcoming year. Well, this is the first of those weeks uh, for 2018 where we have one of our missionaries who is with us here today, Gavin Breeden, who is uh, the campus minister with Reform University Fellowship, RUF, there at Tennessee Tech in Cookville. And uh, he has been kind enough to agree to drive all the way over uh, from Cookville uh, to be with us here this morning. For those of you who are not familiar with RUF, Reform University Fellowship. It is an agency of the denomination of which we are a part, the Presbyterian Church in America, the PCA. And there's a lot I could say, and I have nothing but wonderful things to say about RUF, uh, Reform University Fellowship. But I will simply say this one thing is a key distinction, uh, and that is uh, the, the vision uh, of that ministry, to reach students for Christ and to equip students to serve. Not one, not the other, but both in tandem, wedded together, preparing students not just to serve the Lord Jesus there in their years on a college campus, but to prepare them for a lifetime of kingdom service in his name for his glory's sake. So, Gavin, come on up here. get situated here. Well, it's a real joy to be back with you. Um, I know I've been here several times. I've kind of lost count, um, but always, always a pleasure to come and, and to visit with y'all. Y'all are a sweet congregation. I'm so thankful for your prayers. I know y'all are diligent to pray for your missionaries. I'm certainly thankful for your support um, for our work, our ministry at Tennessee Tech. Um, things are good in Cookville. Things are good at, at Tennessee Tech. I'm, I hope and pray they're good here as well for you. Um, uh, so last semester, I'll just, I'll just start in here. Last semester uh, we, at, at RUF, at Tennessee Tech, we have a, a weekly sort of worship Bible study, large group Bible study on campus every week. Um, and what the, the series we did last semester was Christ in the Old Testament. And so what we did was we went through all these Old Testament passages to see how they point us to Christ. And uh, if you remember from Luke 24 on the road to Emmaus, as Jesus is walking with a couple of disciples and they don't recognize him, and he's telling them about the Old Testament. He's saying, look, the Mo Moses and the prophets talked about the Christ, that it was necessary for him to die and to, be, and to raise again from the grave. Uh, and so we take that very seriously, right? That the Old Testament, when we go to the Old Testament, it points us to Jesus. It points us to Christ. That's what it, this is, book is about. Um, so we're going to be looking at Joshua chapter 20 this morning, if you have a Bible with you. Um, and just let me set the context very briefly before I begin here. Uh, the book of Joshua is all about the Israelites, their conquest of the promised land, right? The land that God had, had promised their ancestors to give to them. And throughout the book, they are driving out the other nations that are residing in the promised land. And at the end of the book, 
they start to divide up the land among the tribes, among the 12 tribes. And uh, God had told them, God had told Moses back in Numbers, back in Deuteronomy, that they needed to establish certain city, what were called cities of refuge. Okay, And so we see in Joshua 20 that they obey that, that command that, that God had given them in Numbers and Deuteronomy. And they start to, they're, as they're dividing up the land, they establish six cities of refuge, which would be a protection for someone who had accidentally killed another person. So with that, I will uh, read this this morning. This is God's word for us today. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Say to the people of Israel, Israel, appoint the cities of refuge of which I spoke to you through Moses, that the manslayer who strikes any person without intent or unknowingly may flee there. There shall be for you a refuge from the avenger of blood. He shall flee to one of these cities and shall stand at the entrance of the gate of the city and explain his case to the elders of that city. Then they shall take him into the city and give him a place, and he shall remain with them. And if the avenger of blood pursues him, they shall not give up the manslayer into his hand, because he struck his neighbor unknowingly and did not hate him in the past. And he shall remain in that city until he has stood before the congregation for judgment, until the death of him who is high priest at the time. Then the manslayer may return to his own town and his own home, to the town from which he fled. So they set apart Kadesh in Galilee in the hill country of Naphtali, and Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim, and Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the hill country of Judah. And beyond the Jordan, east of Jericho, they appointed Bezer in the wilderness on the tableland from the tribe of Reuben, and Ramoth in Gilead from the tribe of Gad, and Golan in Bashan from the tribe of Manasseh. These were the cities designated for all the people of Israel and for the stranger sojourning among them, that anyone who killed a person without intent could flee there, so that he might not die by the hand of the avenger of blood till he stood before the congregation. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's go to him this morning once again ask him for his help. Gracious God, we do come to you, Lord, this morning as needy people, uh, as people who need, even as we study the Bible, even as we come to this passage, we need your help to understand it. We need your help to apply it to our lives, and we pray this morning that you would do that. Lord, I don't know uh, many of the folks in this room. I don't know uh, many of them very well at all, but you do. And you know uh, where each one of us is coming from this morning, and uh, that many of us in this room may have a weary soul, as we just sang about a moment ago. And so I pray that this morning that we would see a refuge in the gospel. We would see a refuge in the person and the work of Jesus for our weary souls, that we would find comfort and safety and protection there. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, what do you think of when you hear the word refuge? What do you think of when you hear that word? Perhaps you think about uh, the news, right? We hear a lot about refugees and war-torn countries who are seeking a uh, safe haven in the United States. Maybe you think about uh, the Psalms, right, as, as David frequently uh, writes and sings about God being a refuge for us. And David, as we know, who was frequently running for his life and fearing for his very life from his enemy, wrote a number of times about God being a refuge, being a safe place, being a safe haven for him, for, for God's people. Maybe you think about the song we just sang, the beautiful and steal hymn, Dear Refuge of My Weary Soul, one of my favorite hymns. 
I recently saw a good example of a refuge in my own home. I, we have uh, my wife and I have three kids. Our oldest daughter is named Addie Pearl. She's six. She's a first grader. And Addie, for some reason, uh, of all of our children, she's the one most prone to like nightmares and stuff. And so every you know couple weeks or so, I'll wake up in the night and hear this sort of frantic pitter patter coming down the stairs. And Addie Pearl will burst into our room, our bedroom, my wife and I, and just say and declare, I had a nightmare. And she'll climb into bed between my wife and I and snuggle up, get under the covers and snuggle up right between us. And we'll, you know, she'll stay there for a little while. And when she kind of calms down, either I or my wife will, will take her back to bed. Um, and do, do you remember that feeling? Do you remember that, that feeling of having a bad dream in the middle of the night and waking up in the darkness? and being terrified, and being scared. And the, the safest place you could think of was your parents' bed, right in between them, right? Cuddled up, protected, safe, secure. Um, the feeling that nothing can get me there. Nothing can, nothing can touch me there. I'm loved, I'm protected, I'm secure. That's what a refuge is. That's a refuge, a, a safe haven in the middle of a nightmare. A, a place, a safe place in the midst of chaos a shelter in the storm. And maybe you're in need of a refuge this morning. Maybe you're, you're dealing with family problems. Maybe you're dealing with, with marriage trouble. Maybe you're dealing with, with financial pressure, uh, financial strain. Maybe there's a, a, a bad situation at work that you have to return to tomorrow, and you're just trying not to think about it today. You're trying to enjoy some time at church without thinking about that, without worrying about that. Maybe you're thinking and wishing... I just wish I had a safe place, a retreat away from the physical ailments I'm struggling with, a, a, a safe place away from this depression, this anxiety that I can't seem to shake. Maybe you're struggling with sin this morning and you just wish you had a break, just wish there was a shelter in the midst of the storm. That's what a refuge is. That's what we long for. And that's what these cities in Joshua chapter 20 were meant to be, a place of safety and protection. In our time together this morning, uh, we're going to see how these cities of refuge provided safety and freedom for the people that they were intended for, and how they point us to Christ as being a refuge for us today. So our first point this morning uh, is is the safety and the refuge. And, and I don't know why I don't know why I do this, but in almost every sermon I've ever I, I like two point sermons. Okay, I like preaching two point sermons. I don't I'm not a traditional three point guy. But my first point is always like two-thirds the size of my, or like twice the size of my second point. So anyways, we'll have a long first point, a brief second point. Just want to let you know where we're going, okay? Just want to keep you in the know of this. Um, and so first we see the safety and the refuge. Um, in ancient Israel, as you're probably well aware, if you killed someone with, uh, with malice, with hatred, with anger, if you killed someone intentionally out of anger, uh, the punishment for that was death. Um, and that, and that's, we can read, you can read about that in a number of places in the Old Testament. But, but what if you accidentally killed someone? Right? What if you're chopping wood with your buddy Joseph? You're out chopping wood, and the axe head flies off your axe, strikes your friend, and kills them. Um, what if you're, and you're not mad at them, you're, you know, he's your friend. What, what if you're building a house, you're building a shelter or something, and you drop a tool, you drop a, a, you know, some sort of heavy thing, and it lands on a, a person? It totally sort of a freak accident, and it lands on them and, and kills them. Uh, well, they had a term for this back in the Old Testament. The term for that was manslayer. Okay, kind of like today we talk about an accidental killing as, as manslaughter. This is sort of like that. 
um, accidentally killing someone without intention, without malice, without anger. And even if you didn't do it, there still was some sort of punishment there, right? Not as severe as murder, but still something. Um, and so that's what our passage is about this morning. There's still a punishment, but it's not as severe. So what is that punishment? Well, in our, pa- in our passage and other passages in the Old Testament, tell us that if someone accidentally kills, or if someone is accidentally killed, it falls on the nearest male relative of that uh, person who has died. It falls on their nearest male relative to avenge that death, to be, as our passage describes, the avenger of blood, which is a terrifying phrase if I've ever heard one. Uh, to be the avenger of blood. And the Hebrew word that's used in our passage that refers to this avenger of blood is very similar to the word used throughout the book of Ruth for kinsman redeemer. If you remember in the book of Ruth, that we, we learn about this practice in the Old Testament. If, a, um, if an Israelite man died and his wife is now a widow, uh, it was up to the nearest male relative uh, to be the kinsman redeemer, to have the option to marry her, to, to care for her, to have children with her. And that sort of thing. So it's a similar idea, right? That when a man has died in Israel, uh, the nearest male relative could be, you know, the kinsman redeemer to marry his widow. And the same thing here. When the nearest, uh, when someone is accidentally killed, the nearest male relative had the option of being the avenger of blood, of avenging that this accidental killing. And so that's why these cities of refuge existed. They were existed for the person who is uh, a manslayer, the person who has accidentally killed someone. But this was a place that they could flee to, a place that they could go to for safety, for protection from the avenger of blood. They would go to one of these six cities, which were spread out across the promised land, and give their story, uh, give, explain their case, explain what happened, um, and find refuge there. And if the avenger of blood came, our passage tells us, that the city would not, would not turn the, this person, this manslayer, over to them. And, and at some point, we're not entirely sure how this all worked out, at some point there was there was something like a trial or a hearing by the congregation, right? Where there would be, you know, it's sort of corroborating this manslayer story to make sure, you know, with witnesses to make sure that he's not lying, to make sure that he's telling the truth. At some point they had that. Um, And then the person, this manslayer, had to remain in the city, had to stay in the city uh, indefinitely until the death of the high priest, the death of whoever was the current high priest at that time. And then the manslayer could return home. That's what our, uh, essentially the, the way these laws worked. Um, and so we see that this law, which may seem sort of strange to us, uh, that this law is really an example, a picture of God's grace. That, that we sometimes get this impression, I sometimes hear this from my students, we get this impression that like in the Old Testament, God is very angry and God is very harsh. In the New Testament, God is very nice and God is very, um, is, is gracious and happy, right? Um, but that's just not true. That, that when we study the Bible closely, we see all through the Bible, all through the Old Testament, again and again and again, examples of God's grace, examples of his mercy, his grace, his provision for, uh, for his people. And right here, we see that, that God did not have to do this. He made provision for these manslayers. He made provisions for those who were guilty of an accidental killing. And, and God also made sure that these cities of refuge were easy to, were easy to, to get to, were easy to access. If you were to look at a map and, and sort of chart out these six cities, um, these six cities were uh, pretty much sort of, as best they could, kind of equally mapped out across Israel. There was three on one side of the Jordan River and three on the other side, so that no matter where you lived, you could get to one uh, relatively easily. 
And it's important to remember, all of these cities of refuge belonged to the Levites. They belonged to the priestly tribe. If you recall, the, Le- the tribe of Levi did not receive a land inheritance. They did not get a big chunk of land. They were the priestly tribe. And instead, what they received is 48 cities spread across the promised land. And so six of those 48 cities were deemed to be the cities of refuge. And so, um, so if you're a manslayer, you're living in these priestly cities. You're living among the priests and their families. Uh, and the story, so what we're seeing, I think what we see when we look at the Bible is that the story of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation is this, that God shows mercy and grace to guilty sinners. We see that in the Old Testament, we see that in the New Testament, and we see this is done in the Bible through his son Jesus. This is the primary way that God is showing grace and mercy to guilty sinners. But we see a glimpse of that, a glimpse of that mercy, a glimpse of God's grace to guilty people in Joshua chapter 20. You know, my last semester of college, I took a class on Shakespeare. I was an English minor, and um, I, re- I really loved this class on, on Shakespeare and still remember it very fondly. And one of the things that I remember we discussed about why Shakespeare's work has endured uh, so well over the centuries um, is that Shakespeare created characters. He wrote about people in a way that they just sort of came to life off the page. He must have been a very astute observer of human nature, of human beings, because he writes about people in, in ways that, are, that seem real, that seem very authentic and, and that we can relate to. Uh, he wrote about experiences, he wrote about emotions that, that we can identify with. And one of, his most, one of the most famous scenes probably uh, in Shakespeare's um, work is a scene from Macbeth. When, when Lady Macbeth is encouraged, has encouraged her husband to kill the king of Scotland, uh, in order to, to make a, a grab at, his, at the power, of, at the throne of Scotland. And as time, as the story goes on, she begins to sort of go insane. She starts to, you know, imagine blood on her hands, right? Because she has been involved in this coup. She's been involved in this assassination. She's encouraged her husband to participate. And she's imagining blood on her hands. And, and she's, there's a scene in which she's trying to wash her hands off. And she can't wash the blood away. She can't wash uh, the reminder, this, this blood she's imagining on her hands. She can't get it off. She can't wash it off. She feels like she can't be clean. It's a reminder of her guilt. And maybe you have wrestled with guilt like that. Maybe when you, when you hear that, that, or reminded of that scene or hear that scene, maybe you identify with that. Maybe um, you carry around feelings of guilt with you. Whether you're a Christian or not a Christian, this can... This could be you. You carry around feelings of guilt with you all the time. Maybe you feel guilt over choices that you've made in the past. Maybe you feel guilt over the way that you have hurt people in the past, the way that you have hurt yourself, the way that you have hurt your reputation. Maybe you feel guilt um, over sexual sin in your past. Maybe you feel guilt over harsh words that you've spoken to your spouse, to your children, uh, to loved ones, to people who are near and dear to you. And, things that you, and, you, and you think of these things, and they, they fill you with regret, and they fill you with shame. And uh, maybe you feel guilty about mistakes that you have made or disagreements that, that have ruined and fractured relationships. And every time you think of these things, it, it fills you, just fills you with, with shame. Fills you, and you just feel that, that sense of guilt so acutely. Or maybe you have a feeling of guilt, a sense of guilt that you carry around with you, and you have no idea... What, where it comes from. And you have no idea what it's associated with. You just feel constantly 
guilty. And when you imagine God in your head, when you think about God, and you imagine him thinking about you, his face is one of disappointment. His face is one, uh, his face is a frown. And you just have that feeling, that's how you think about God. And you carry that around with you all the time. But the good news of the Bible, the good news of the gospel is this, that God makes provisions for guilty people. God loves guilty people. We see God providing in Joshua 20 for guilty people, and we see that even more clearly in the Lord Jesus Christ. We see that just, just as the cities of refuge were safe, haven, safe havens for the guilty manslayer, Jesus is an even safer place for guilty sinners like you and me. That, that whatever guilt that you brought in here this morning, guilt about your past, guilt about your present, guilt about things you've done or things you've left undone, the guilt that haunts you, you have no idea why, Jesus is the refuge that we need to run to. He is the, the only safe place for guilty sinners like us, the only place for us to find safety, the only place for us to find forgiveness. And Jesus, I don't think I need to point this out, but Jesus is so much better than the cities of refuge. The cities of refuge were only for the person only for the manslayer, the person who had accidentally taken a life. But Jesus is a safe place even for those of us who have intentionally done bad things, those of us who have intentionally uh, sinned and knowingly done something wrong, knowingly violated God's laws and his commands. And Jesus calls the guilty to himself to come to find forgiveness. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter what sort of guilt that you're carrying Jesus invites you to come to him to find rest and safety and protection. And Jesus, you know, we think about the things that Jesus saves us from, right? He saves us from sin. He saves us from death. But he also saves us from a guilty conscience. Uh, Romans 8.1, a verse I love, says this, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. In other words, if, if you are resting in Christ, if Christ is your refuge, no one can condemn you. God does not condemn you. God has no wrath stored up for you. Your sins have been covered by the blood of the Lamb. Jesus paid the full price for your guilt and for my guilt. And other, other people may try to condemn you, and your own conscience may try to condemn you. And when I'm talking about your conscience condemning you, your conscience telling you that you're not forgiven, that the thing that you have done is too big, God could not possibly forgive it. There could not possibly be forgiveness for the thing, for that guilt that you carry. But that's simply not true. If you are in Christ, if you are resting and trusting in him, when God thinks of you, there is not a frown on his face. He is not disappointed. Because when, when God looks at you, if you're a Christian, he sees the righteousness of Christ clothing you, the good works of his son Jesus draped over you. You know, I remember several times in the Gospels uh, when, when we hear God speak from heaven uh, about his son Jesus, we hear him say these words, This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. If you are in Christ, if you are a Christian, that is what God says about you, that this is my beloved son, this is my beloved daughter in whom I am well pleased. Not because of what you've done, not because of how you perform, but because he looks at you and he sees the righteousness of Christ. I saw a video recently on the internet that really, I think, uh, was a really beautiful and touching thing. Um, it's a video, you can, you can probably find it. It's a, it was a, actually a former Nashville Predator 
hockey player named Bobby Butler um, from maybe four years ago. And um, he's now playing in the AHL, and, and he's about 30 years old. But Bobby Butler, earlier this month, found out he is going to be representing the USA in this upcoming Winter Games. And this video is, a, is, a, is at some sort of hockey practice, and it's a video of Bobby telling his father that he is going to be playing in the Olympics, going to be playing hockey in the Olympics for the USA. And you, you can't hear what's said. You should Google this video. It's really beautiful. He, you can't hear what is said between the father and the son. You just sort of see the reaction. And so it takes place at the edge of the ice rink, and Bobby, the hockey player, is out on the ice. He's kind of all in his hockey gear. And the dad comes down, and you see them talking, and suddenly the father's face changes, and it lights up, and he embraces his son. Uh, and you see, you know, after he, and he's a, these are big, big guys, okay? The father especially is a really big guy, tough guy, as you would, you would assume. And the father, you know, he kind of playfully sort of, you know, hits his son a little bit on the, on the pad and kind of hits him on the, on the head a little bit, sort of encouraging a little, you know, uh, little playful pats or whatever. Uh, and the son sort of skates away, and then you just sort of see the son, Bobby, 30-year-old man, he wants some more. And he skates back to the edge of the rink, and the father just embraces him again and kisses him on the cheek. His father kisses him on the cheek. These two tough hockey guys. Um, and it is a beautiful, it is a beautiful scene. And when you see that video, you see this is a beloved son. This is a well-pleased father. This is a picture of that. And if you are trusting in Christ, if you are uh, a Christian, the gospel says that is what you have in God, except even better. That is the way that God looks at you, except even better, that God delights in you like that. So when Jesus is your refuge, your sins are forgiven. Your guilt is wiped away. That's the reality. And so if you are a Christian this morning and you are still carrying around feelings of guilt about things that happened last week, things that happened uh, decades ago, there is forgiveness for you. There is, there is uh, that, that guilt has been wiped away by the blood of Christ. If you are not a believer this morning and you, are, you feel the sense of guilt, you want to be free from it, take your refuge in the Lord Jesus. Make your hiding place in him. And so our, that's our, our first point this morning. Our second point, then, briefly, is, is the freedom in the refuge. That's the safety in the refuge. This is the freedom in the refuge. So I read an article recently that was about uh, zoos. And this was a pro-zoo article, okay? I don't know if there's any anti-zoo people in here. If so, I apologize uh, for, for this. But uh, this was an interesting article, and, and you know, because I, I sort of feel torn. I go to the zoo sometimes. My kids and I love it. We enjoy it. But sometimes I'm like, is this, is this okay? Like these animals kind of trapped behind these cages and stuff. Um, but this article is really interesting, and it, it talked about like tigers and spe specifically that like how a zoo is a good place. Like animals that are in the zoo are are actually in really good shape because they don't have to worry about predators, right? They may be in these enclosed places, but they don't have to worry about predators. They don't have to worry about competing for their next meal, where their next meal is going to come from. Um, and it's and it said in studies they've done that like the animals begin to feel a sense of ownership over the, the areas that they're in. Like the tigers in the pen begin to feel a sense of ownership over this area, that, this, you know, that they're sort of king of this, this little domain that they have. And so there's, this, there's a sense in which you know, they are safer, and 
there's a sense in which they are more free, actually, in the zoo than out in the wild. They, they experience something of a confined freedom, um, just like the manslayer in the, in the refu- city of refuge. And that's something I think sort of ironic about freedom, that I see this in my students, too. Most of my students, college students, they are, they are completely free. Um, they, they have very little, th- there are very few things that tie them down. Um, most of my students are not married. Um, none of them have any children. They, none of them, as far as I know, have any mortgages. Um, very few possessions, not a ton of responsibility. But, and yet, when I sit down with my students, they don't, I don't get the sense that they feel very free. Um, they have a million question marks in their lives. You know, what am I going to major in? What kind of job do I want to do? Um, am I going to go to grad school? Where am I going to grad school? Who am I going to marry? And they are constantly sort of weighed down and burdened by all these question marks in their lives. Meanwhile, I sort of look at my life, and I have a wife, I have three children, I have a mortgage, um, I have uh, bills to pay, you know, all these fun things. Um, I have taxes to do pretty soon. Um, and yet, like, I feel in some ways I'm more free than my students because I wake up every day and there are almost no question marks in my life. I know exactly what I need to do today. I know exactly, you know, I need to serve God. I need to love my wife and, and care for my children. I need to go to campus and, and see my students and minister to them. I need to pay my bills on time and those sort of things. But in, within, the, within these sort of restraints in my life, these sort of confines, I feel a great deal of freedom. Uh, I don't have a lot of, a lot of questions sort of, you know, uh, um, weigh me down all the time. Uh, so my students, I think, when I look at them, they have less responsibilities than me, but they seem less free than I do. And the, manspl- the manslayer in our passage experienced this sort of confined freedom as well, that he had to remain within the city. He cannot leave the city of refuge. Once he's allowed to stay, he has to stay there. He can't leave or he might be killed by the avenger of blood. If the avenger of blood catches him outside of the city, it's fair game, right? And the only place that the manslayer can be truly free is within the walls of the city. Outside the city, he's constantly looking over his shoulder. He's worried. He's, he's watching. He's, he's burdened. The avenger of blood might be right around every corner. But inside the city of refuge, he's free from all of that. So one of the things a refuge provides for us, sort of oddly, perhaps, is freedom. The safety and protection of a refuge provide freedom from fear, from worry, um, from the things that threaten you. And in a similar way, when we take refuge in the Lord Jesus, we find ultimate freedom. Just as the manslayer wasn't truly free unless he was inside the city of refuge, you and I are not truly free unless we're following Jesus, unless we're, unless we're living in him. And here's how I think many, of, many people think about freedom. Freedom, they, we often think about in terms of like me doing exactly what I want, when I want, where I want, with whom I want, how I want. And we sort of think about like that's the good life, right? To be totally and perfectly free in every regard, letting my desires just lead me wherever I want to go and following them without question. I want this, I'm going to take it. I want to do this, I'm going to do it. Um, I do what I want, right? And, and that's how many people... I th- Think about freedom. But the Bible looks at that kind of life and says, that's not freedom, that's slavery. The Bible says that's slavery. That, and when we read in Romans 6, 16, that, that you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to, to righteousness. The passage says, if you live your life doing whatever you want, if, if all you do is obey your own desires, you're not actually free at all. You're actually a slave, a slave to sin. 
So we're either a slave to sin or a slave to Christ. One of those leads to death, and one of those leads to our flourishing. And that's what it means to be free within sort of the confines of the Christian life, is that this is where you were designed to flourish. This is where you were designed, this is how you were designed to live. Um, you know, people outside of Christianity often look at Christianity and, and think it's a straitjacket, right? You have to believe these certain things, you have to live the certain way, obey these certain rules. It's too restrictive, it's too narrow. But the Bible paints a very different picture, right? That the Christian life is where human beings flourish, right? Psalm 1 paints us this picture of the Christian life as a tree that's planted by streams of water, right? And it is a tree that is strong and bearing much fruit. That is what human beings are like in the Christian life. When we are following, when we are united to Christ, when we are enjoying his benefits, we are following him in obedience in the Christian life. And so part of what it means to take our refuge in Christ is that we experience freedom like this. And in fact, it's the only place that we can be truly free. So the city of refuge in Joshua 20 is a place of safety and a place of freedom. And that's what a refuge is. That's what Jesus offers to us this morning. Safety for our souls. Freedom in the Christian life. But how do we know that these promises to us in the Bible are sure? How do we know that we can trust them and rely on them? Well, notice in verse 6, the last thing I'll put out to you this morning, notice in verse 6, it tells us that the manslayer must remain in the city. And look at the very end there. Um, then the manslayer, or sorry, at, at the, uh, about halfway through the verse, it says, until the death of him who is high priest at the time. Then the manslayer may return to his own town and his own home to the town from which he fled. And so when is the manslayer allowed to leave the city, allowed to leave the city of refuge and go back home? It's when the high priest dies. Now, the high priest is like top dog, okay? He's priest number one. Um, he was the one who, the high priest is the one who goes into the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement and makes, offers a sacrifice on behalf of all of Israel. He's their representative, right, in the most holy place. And when he dies, all of the manslayers in the cities of refuge can go home. Why is that? Is it just sort of an arbitrary marker of time? Like, yeah, you can go home now. No, the, 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 uh, the reasoning for this is, is as, it's as if the high priest's death has been a substitute for the manslayer's death. Someone has died, and now the debt is cleared. The punishment is ended. You can go back home. Someone has died in your place. And the book of Hebrews tells us in the New Testament that Jesus is our ultimate high priest, that he is better than all the other high priests before him, that, and he offered the very best sacrifice. He offered himself. And when Jesus died, that's what purchased our forgiveness. That's what purchased our freedom. That's what wiped away our guilt. And that's how we know this is guaranteed, that Jesus, the high priest, has died in our place so that guilty people like us can be forgiven, so that we can be safe from condemnation and guilt and judgment, so that we can be free from sin, so that we can go home. We are guilty sinners in need of a refuge, and Joshua 20 shows us that the heart of God is to provide a refuge for sinners like us. And he's done that in the Lord Jesus. He, he, so, so let us come to Jesus this morning and find refuge and find safety and security and find peace and hope in him.
Let us find a refuge for our weary souls. Amen. Let me pray for us.